Welcome back to uh, On the Ground, a podcast for the members of Hill City Baptist Church and Peter in Peterborough. And you know the drill by now. I am surrounded by the nourishing presence of Alex Klusterman and Rylan Auger and uh, Malachi McCavney. Thankful for all of you. Uh, we apologize for any emotional trauma you may have suffered uh, <laughs> from the last few weeks of absence. But I talked to Alan. He's willing to reimburse you if you get contacted <laughs> financially. Um, so we're going to be chatting today about probably one of our favorite subjects, and that subject is... Basketball. Yes. And by <laughs> basketball, we mean books. Uh, b -b -b books. <laughs> uh, okay. We, we love books here at Hill City Baptist Church. We don't love... I love basketball, but I'm the only one. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I, you like basketball. I've been enjoying playing it on Fridays with the guys. Oh, okay. Sorry, Ben. That's books. okay. Uh, yeah, we like books. Uh, in fact, we just got a new library here in our church, which yep. is also exciting. Um, Shout out to Noreen. Yes. Well, we, we had a library for a while, but it was entirely inaccessible. Oh, that's right. It was yeah. stored away in a box in a closet. Yeah. So thanks to Noreen for... For getting that out there. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we're going to be talking about books today and it's going to be just an informal discussion. We, we, we each are surrounded by uh, precarious towers of books and we're just going to talk about them. So anyone want to talk about a book? <laughs> I, I love books. And um, years ago when I was in, not that many years ago, but in Barbados sometime 2010, 2012, I got a Kobo e-reader because e-reading was like starting to really take off. Oh. And I remember there were discussions about, you know, whether they would just do away with printed mm -hmm. books. And that definitely has not happened. No. Thank God. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate e-books. You can get them much cheaper. You can bring them. Did you say you, you have a Kobo? I, I Was do. that before the Kindle? Uh, no, but oh. it was a Canadian company that started up. It's, oh, okay. it's sold, it sold out to some huge Japanese company. But um, anyways... I, when I say I love books, I, I love printed books. Mm. Like my favorite material possessions in this world by far. Besides that shirt. <laughs> Besides this mint flannel shirt are books. Yeah, by oh, far. Oh, for sure. So I love reading, but I actually love books. Like I used to read blogs about like printing. And not all books are created equal. No, that's right. Yes. So just to say a book is one thing, but when you say books, you're, what you're getting at is also like a well-made book. Mm. Yeah, well-made It's very book. different. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so long live the book. Agreed. I'll, I'll amen that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think, Malachi? Hallelujah. Okay. Hallelujah. Hallelujah from Malachi. All even, right. Even the tech guy loves books. That's saying <laughs> <Yes>. something. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay, so we're just going to jump in. Uh, Ryland, I'm going to pick on you first. Okay. I noticed you have a stack there. How yep. about you give us your top one right oh, now? The top Like book. your number one favorite book in that stack. Uh, in this stack? Yeah. Because I'll, I'll have you know that my phone is sitting here intentionally because I've been using Audible as well, okay. which is another form of ebook, And I've been listening to the Chronicles of Narnia, which uh, has been amazing. What book are you on? I am currently the midway through The Voyage of the Dawn Fighter. Uh, yeah. And to my shame... I've not actually read all seven of them. I, I have, haven't. Yeah, you haven't either. You to your, to your I, shame as well. Because I watched the BBC series when I was a kid, 
and it was creepy. They are creepy. And They're also the best ones. Made, I haven't seen them. I, so. I love the BBC oh, Narnia. Huh. After you read the Narnia Chronicles, you mm-hmm. got to read Planet Narnia. Planet Narnia. Yeah. Uh, you mean? Wait, do you mean Horton? Uh, okay. Not Horton. There's it's, another guy. But it's a book by someone else. It's a book by someone else on the Chronicles of Narnia, huh. and he ties in the seven books to Lewis's kind of understanding of medieval cosmology, where each it's each a, each book's it's funny. I, I because I've read these books before, except for the last two. I never, there's lots of things you don't pick up on when you read a novel as a child or like younger, mm-hmm. and then you read it 10 years later, and all of a sudden there's all these other things you pick up on. One of the things I'm noticing, and this is partly because a lot of, you'll notice from my stack here, a lot of the other things I'm reading have to do with education. So the amount of times that Lewis is chirping the education that someone has received or something, mm-hmm. and yeah. it's usually One a of reflection his of, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. He often wants to. So right now in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, he's going on and on about how Eustace has read all these useless books about right. economics yeah, and, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and business and various trades. And, and he, he has no idea what a dragon is until he literally becomes one. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of a fantastic a little irony. Yeah. yeah. Well, the abolition of man, that's kind of what that's about. Yeah, yeah, it, those, yeah. that's a series of lectures. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I remember he's talking about a textbook he was reading. Mm-hmm. The Green Book. All I, yeah, the Green, the green Book. book. Yeah. All I think about is how much it would suck to be the author of that book. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. he's yeah. All I think is C.S. Lewis, Lewis <laughs> like the, the towering giant, yeah. the Oxford medieval yeah. scholar, you know, and the history of, like, literature. He's a giant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he's just like, this thing is right. Ridiculous. Yeah. And just Eustace, yeah. Eustace is like the archetypal product of yeah, that totally. education system. Mm-hmm. And he just, yeah, he lambasted mm-hmm. it. Yeah. His, his arc in that book is very encouraging, though. It's very... Yes, that's like, right. Yes, his, his, sort for, of his yes. character growth is really mm-hmm. encouraging. But sorry, to get back to your question, okay, for sure sorry, my favorite your, your, book in this stack is definitely The Seven Laws of Teaching by John mm-hmm. Milton Gregory. Uh, if you're never going to teach... I would still recommend this book to you. And the reason I would do that is because uh, for every law of teaching that he gives, there's sort of a reciprocal law of learning. And one of the, one of the most mm. encouraging things about reading this book is I feel like I actually have a better idea of how I learn, how we learn. Right. Um, it's really good. Um, Gregory is himself a master teacher. And when he writes, he writes by applying the seven laws of teaching that he's saying you need to learn. That's great. Mm. It's really good. So so anyone who wants to, to just get better at learning, think about the process, I would say, this book. But even uh, especially if you're going to teach, and I don't mean preaching. Preaching is kind of a whole, it's another level of teaching, I think. Yeah. Lecturing. But, but I mean like classroom, any sort of classroom engagement, this is the book you need to read for sure. Do you think preachers should still read this book? I still think preachers should yes. read it. There's, there's sort of a... There's an element in some of his laws that have to do with the interaction between the teacher and the student. And, uh, and when you're preaching, obviously, there isn't the same... Inter- you're not having a dialogue at any point. Yeah. But I think it's helpful... Unless you're doing it wrong. Yeah, unless you're doing it unless wrong. Unless you're sitting on yeah. a chair. Um, but I think it's helpful discussion. to think about how you have to, in preaching, you have to do that work. You have to do more work because you don't... You don't get to ask questions of your students. Yeah, you don't right. get to ask them what they know and what they remember That's right. from previous things they've learned. You have to start from an assumption. You have of, to anticipate. Yes, that. you have mm. to anticipate. So there's a degree to which you should know this because in preaching you're going to have to sort of go beyond it. Yeah. You're going to have to actually think answers for things you haven't asked. That's right, yeah. 
Yeah. So one of sense. the laws that I appreciate in there is working from the known to the unknown. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's just a truism of communication. Mm-hmm. And we see that in scripture that yes. God speaks in a language that humans understand. He doesn't mm-hmm. show up in a form or speaking a language that we don't get. Mm-hmm. And yet he, he takes us from that place of comprehension to new paradigms and to, uh, you know, I think, well, language is a great example. You know, the New Testament is written in Koine Greek and the mm-hmm. Old Testament in Hebrew and a particular culture at a particular time. And if you look at even things like the temple, you know, I remember Gentry saying, like, if you look at the, the Israelite temple, it's, it's almost exactly the same as every other temple you'd see in the ancient Near mm-hmm. East. But there's, mm-hmm. there are important distinctions. One being when you go into the Holy of Holies, there's no image of the God. There's the law. And, you know, the principle is God will be worshipped according to who he's revealed himself to be. But anyways, the idea of moving from the known to the unknown is really helpful. Yeah. So when you, you know, one thing you do well in your preaching, Ben, is you give a lot of illustrations. So you'll say something, but you'll say this is, you know, categories that you will understand this in and then go on to explain it. That's really helpful. And that was, I actually got that from Saving Eutychus. Oh, yeah? I found it so helpful when he was like, instead of using really complicated illustrations in and out, like, like kind of drawn out, just you just illustrates your points with basic, simple things. And that will kind of revive the attention of the listener. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a great, that was another a great, great again. Yeah. 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 It's very, it's very practical. Um, and it's very, in, t- in terms of, bonus. yeah, in yeah. terms of the, uh, uh, speaking aspect of preaching, yeah. um, there's better books, I think, in terms of how yeah. to like how to pull out things from the text. Right. Yeah, but, no one, yeah. But, so all the preachers yeah. you listen to our podcast are being helped right now. <laughs> yeah. All yeah. the preachers are in the podcast. Yeah. Right now. yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, Great chat, guys. Yes. <laughs> Al, you're you're up next. Yeah. yeah tell you got a that. massive tome there. <laughs> I do. A, I do have a massive tome here, and you're I actually do think preachers in Canada. Well, I think uh, preachers everywhere should read this book, but. For different reasons. This is the rise and fall of the Third Reich. We don't have this in our church library. Okay, well, no. you can just loan us your copy. I was yeah. waiting for you to explain why it was there because there's a giant swastika staring at us all. Yeah, so um, there's a quote in the, in the front of the book, and it says, those who do not remember the past are condemned mm-hmm. to relive it. Yes. And mm-hmm. that, that's just very helpful and true. And we live at a time where um, people have no comprehension of history. And not just they don't know the facts, they have no idea why, why would you even want to know history? I mean, I wasn't told, I like history, and I don't remember anyone ever telling me why we should learn it. Mm. I remember my father instructed me, my grandfather. I remember being interested in school. I took history, you know, for seven years at Trent. But, <laughs> you know, and I still didn't really know why. And... Uh, um, you know, that's one reason. So you don't, you don't repeat the things. There's a, there's a quote in here uh, that I just want to read in the foreword. And um, he says, basically, th- this guy wrote this book. He lived through the rise of the Third Reich mm-hmm. in Germany. And he wrote this um, years afterwards. And it was released in 1960. And some of the critics would say, look, the war ended in 1945. And, you know, why would you why would you write the book so soon? Like, usually you need to take some time away. And and he writes in the foreword, 
Some may think it is much too early to try and write a history of the Third Reich, that such a task should be left to a later generation of writers to whom time has given perspective. I found this view especially pervasive in France, and I went to do some research there. There is much merit to this view. Most historians have waited 50 or 100 or more years before attempting to write an account of the country and empire and era. But was this not principally because it took that long for the pertinent documents to come to light and furnish them with the authentic material they needed. So this guy, after the war in 1945, the Allies confiscated like 450 tons of documents from from the Germans. And that was just in one, from the castles and stuff. And there were other documents as well. Um, he says... Um, Though perspective was gained, was not something lost because the authors lacked a personal acquaintance with the life and atmosphere of the times and the historical figures about which they wrote. So the question, this book is not only, you know, having facts of history, but it's kind of teaching us how to do history. Mm. And he's, he's defending writing this book so soon after the war by saying, look, yeah, I haven't we haven't stepped back 50 years and let the dust settle, um, but I was there, and I've corroborated these things with sources that normally you don't have sources that close to the events. Mm -hmm. It takes years and years and years for those things to happen. So I, I think this is an important book because we need to know, we need to wrestle with as human beings um, why things happened in the past. I, I won't read the other quote from it, but the, the man who wrote the foreword is saying, you know, how did the most civilized nation in the history of the world, from a secular perspective, when you think about the advancements in technology and medicine, architecture, um, even in history, these types of things, uh, quality of life, how did they become the ones to lead such a genocidal, crazy, you know, when you read about Hitler in here, they, I forget what he calls him, the vagabond. Like, he is not, he was not an impressive guy in society he was a like a lower class homeless like wild artsy vagabond hmm. and he rose to be chancellor and and to lead the third right how, how the, when you look at the guys around him some of them are just nuts you're like how did how did they take over power in germany you know we're not talking about uneducated people and so it questions a lot of our assumptions about human progress right. and human nature. If everyone nature. was educated, then ever, the world would be a better place. Yeah. yeah. And it's almost like God, and I don't presume to know, what, you know why this happened, but it's like, it just shatters that idea. Mm -hmm. It just shatters the idea that if we become educated, if we build institutions, if we have technology advanced to a place, then we will move beyond... It's like, no, we won't because mm -hmm. we're the same people and we'll just use it all towards our evil, yeah. Yeah. bitter end. Anyways, I, I commend it. Uh, I think, honestly, every high school student should read this. If you get out of high school and you haven't read this book, that's a, that's a problem. So, Is there an abridged version or is that? No, I don't think so. Okay, It's about, what, 1,200 pages? Yeah, it's, pre it's pretty important long. Important stuff and definitely yeah, important. stuff we can't forget. No. Uh, okay, so um, tell us about something you're reading, Ben. Okay, I will. Yeah, I have this book. 
It's uh, it's actually a biography of William. It's pr- uh, his name was actually pronounced William Cooper, and a lot of people pronounce it William Cowper, but it's William Cooper. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a book from Joshua Press, which uh, someone in our church has recently acquired. I encourage it to you. It's a great biography. There's been dozens of biographies that have been written about William Cooper. Uh, for those who don't know, he was uh, a famous hymn writer and a poet, and he did some translation work and um, worked against the abolition of slavery. And mm-hmm. um, But there's a lot of people who, who approach his life uh, ignoring or trying to explain away his evangelical convictions. And you mm-hmm. just can't do that with William Cooper. You right. can't understand the man if you don't understand his... Uh, his faith. And uh, so it's a great book. Um, this guy's read all the primary sources, uh, George Ella, and uh, does a really good job at kind of bringing out some. I, there's three main things that he brought out that I found uh, helpful and encouraging. The first thing was um, the importance that uh, friendship has for people struggling with uh, mental illness. Mm-hmm. Um, William Cooper was uh, a sick man. Uh, he had periods of just emotional devastation uh, and, and periods of just uh, rapture in, in the glory of God. Um, and what, what brought him through those dark times was, you know, not someone coming to him saying, Here, here's where you're wrong in your theology, William Cooper. Here's what you need to change, because he had impeccable theology. Mm-hmm. Uh, he knew his Bible. He read all the good books. Um, but someone just walking with them, and that, and that man was John Newton. Um, and they composed hymn books together. Uh, and, but he was always there. Uh, William Cooper would write to John basically uh, saying, I'm in the depths again. And, and Newton would kind of respond and encourage him with scripture. And, you know, he'd come over and talk to him. And, and he was really a stabilizing force in his life. So I think that's just a good thing for us to remember that the most important thing um, you know, for people struggling with mental illness, whether it's depression or anxiety or different things, just to be there, to be present, to be um, consistently present. Um, so that was one important thing. Um, and kind of going along with that, a second thing was uh, how God just uh, you know, multiplied the few loaves that Cooper had, um, right. you know, his, his periods of darkness outweighed his periods of um, kind of stability and sanity. Hmm. Um, but the things that he accomplished during those times uh, were remarkable. I mean, he, he attacked um, uh, translations of Homer that he didn't feel were... Uh, uh, Alexander Pope, he didn't like Alexander Pope's translations. And, um, and yeah, his work... Uh, Furthering kind of the the revival at that time, the evangelical awakening. Um, uh, obviously, his hymn writing. He brought a whole new uh, range of hymns to the church. Um, so it's just encouraging that, uh, and even and even us, and encouraging people with perhaps with mental illnesses that you know to encourage them to to do what they can to the best of their ability, and knowing that God can can use that. Mm-hmm. And uh, it certainly has stood the test of time. Uh, the, the third thing that struck out to me while reading this was um, the power of poetry. And I, when I think of poetry, I just get overwhelmed because it just seems like such a vast subject that I don't understand. Mm. But um, poetry is, is language 
the more I read poetry as language honed to its keenest edge. Mm. It really is. Good poetry. Uh, yeah. Good poetry. Yeah. Yes, yes. I'm not talking about, you know, necessarily Dr. Zeus rhyming poetry, although th- I think there's a place for that. But it's tragic how we're in a generation now that has kind of closed the window to the beauty of poetry. Uh, we just don't understand it. We don't know how to appreciate it. Um, uh, and, and I think we, we have really lost something uh, there. Uh, poetry is not just the communicating of information. It's, it's, it's the beautifying of information. It's, it's, it's being right. able to communicate things. It's not just pragmatic. It's not. Uh, it, it has to do with, with uh, cadence and rhythm and um, all sorts of things. It, it's, it's an art. Yeah. Uh, and, and good poetry is, is really beautiful. Uh, and actually, Cooper, along with a number of um, other poets of a day, said that uh, uh, blank verse, which is basically non-rhyming poetry, uh, most closely resembled the language of Eden, so pre-fall language. And he just has a great quote here. Or, uh, this is actually one of his poems, uh, and I'll end with this. It says, In Eden, ere yet innocence of heart had faded, Poetry was not an art, language above all teaching, or if taught, only by gratitude and glowing thought, elegant as simplicity and warm, an ecstasy unmanacled by form, not prompted as in our degenerate days by low ambition and the thirst of praise, was natural as is the flowing stream, and yet magnificent, a god the theme. And um, anyways... It's a great book. Uh, there's lots more I could say about that, but I really enjoyed it. That's great. Yeah. I, I Poetry is, there's like a popular a view of poetry that's kind of weird, but it, it, I think uh, the way you described it was good. Yeah. yeah. It just, it just, it, it, it's, un, it's so unfamiliar to mm-hmm. us. Like I, I, I started reading uh, Dante's uh, Divine Comedy and I got about halfway through. It was just, it was really difficult to read. <laughs> I just, it's just something you're not familiar with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I actually enjoy reading old hymns more than singing them mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because then you have the time to contemplate some of the verses. Um, we Sometimes you sing through them so fast and there's so many verses, you don't actually get a lot of the weight of what they all are saying. But mm-hmm. yeah, poetry is great. I actually, if you're looking, um, I have a, a book a couple of years ago, I was like, oh, I really want to start reading more poetry. So I got, um, what's it called? Uh, Something of Praise, an anthology of Christian literature. And it goes back as far as like the medieval period. Mm. Yeah, it's got lots of good stuff in there. You know what I don't like about poetry? Well, no, I, I like good poetry. Well, what I understand to be good poetry, which maybe is not. <laughs> but... I find that some people who write poetry are like very sanctimonious. It's kind of like artists in general, mm. how it's like, oh, I'm an artist. I'm a poet. It's like, do you think that's good because it's obscure? Or or, like right. what actually makes that right. good? Like, yeah. Just because people don't get it and you kind of, that's something you take pride in. It's like, oh, it's poetry. Like right, it's right, above right. you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know what yeah. I mean? It's above your mm-hmm. comprehension. And I'm like, I... I appreciate that there are things that we shouldn't immediately grasp and there is a a value in that. That mm. things not just being on the surface. Mm. Communicating things that there are layers to um, that you don't immediately get. And it's, a, it's an ignorant attitude to kind of 
I don't get that. It's it's lame. Right. That's that's that is wrong. But yeah. there's also like this highbrow. I don't care. The point is not actually to communicate anything. It's to obscure it's things to be, yeah. in the name of being right. mm-hmm. poetic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And maybe I was just my first year English class, but I just thought. Yeah. Uh, another g- great thing about Cooper is that it, well, he one of his titles was the domestic poet, and mm. uh, he had the ability to kind of look out of a window on a winter's night and just see the snow coming down and and find beauty and new words for that um, through mm. his poetry. He wasn't trying to be kind of elitist. I definitely have read poetry like that, and yeah. it's kind of nauseating. But um, <laughs> I just want to tell those people their poetry sucks. Yeah, but they would look just, at me and they would. They, if I said that, they'd yeah. actually be even prouder of themselves <laughs> because this this low yeah. brow schmuck. Well, that's that's what it. you want to like make sure of before you like throw out those accusations because it's like yeah. so you're not like a low brow schmuck. Yeah. yeah, like if, if I'm at a gallery and I'm looking at some impressionist painting, I'm like, oh, I really, I don't like it. Therefore, it's not a good painting. It's like, well. That might just be demonstrating your ignorance mm-hmm. as well, and hundred <laughs> percent. But you acknowledge there definitely that. are yeah. some aspects of that for sure. Yeah, it's I, a hobby of mine. I uh, I don't demonstrating my ignorance. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> going to the art gallery? No, demonstrating yeah, yeah. My all wrong. <laughs> hey, can I talk about another book? Yeah, go ahead. Yes. Yeah. Not that I was going to say anything. Maybe we should talk. <laughs> maybe it's okay. Maybe uh, we should mention some good poetry sometime. Yeah. By good, I don't just mean by our standards, but what do people consider to be good poetry? William Cooper. Yeah. Yeah, I read him. Yeah, I, I... I like John Piper's poetry. Yeah, I was going to say, Piper has some good, some good. good stuff. Yeah. Is there anything that guy can't I, do? You know what Piper yeah. has redeemed is is the, the simple rhyme that some people want to do. They want to do poetry, and they don't... They, they want it to be like... I guess it's that abstraction that you're talking about. And there's no rhyme. And I'm okay with poetry that doesn't rhyme. Um, but I... There's something about the simplicity of Piper's poetry. It's all it's got a rhyme, yeah. it's got a good meter. His book on Job is really his poetom, poem on Job is really good. I yeah. have only read the first few lines, but yeah, I read the whole one on great. Esther. Yeah. And it was good. Sorry, I'll we uh No, that's fine. Uh one of the books this is a book that I would um every once in a while you come across as a pastor and you think, I wish everyone in my church had this book. This is one of those books. So it's called Confronting Christianity and um, uh, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. And it's written um, by a lady named Rebecca McLaughlin. And uh, she's from the UK. And um, Not th- Sarah. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's phenomenal. So it's just basically 12 short chapters on big questions. So, you know, aren't we better off without religion? Doesn't Christianity cross diversity? How can you say there's only one true faith? Doesn't religion hinder morality? You know, does religion cause violence? How can you take the Bible literally? Like things that you would, Hmm. if you got into a conversation with just like coworkers, family members, people who don't know Jesus, they would probably appeal to at least one of these questions in some form. And I think the strength of the book is that it's written very much for Christians, but it's almost written to unbelievers in in the sense that she's writing assuming um, someone who has these objections will be reading it. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes you read 
you know, hopefully not often. You read Christian books; they're kind of like just dealing with straw men or something. Yeah, yeah. it's like it's like no one really thinks yeah. that, or yeah. just content with winning an argument or something like that. Right. But if you were to do, if you're having a real conversation with someone, it's more nuanced than that. Mm. Um, it's very well researched. It's up to date. Um, it's not just you know proof texting scriptures. So. You know, I would commend it and think that, you know, if every Christian in our church really understood mm. these things, they would feel way better equipped to just deal with, just deal with, just to care for and love and speak boldly and truthfully about Jesus. So That's great. Yeah. I really encourage. Book. Uh, We're all looking at me again. Oh. Yeah. Well, <laughs> do you want to go next? Yeah, sure. Okay. I'm trying to think. I, I'm, all the... I don't actually want to talk about the books I have in front of me. Oh, okay. Um, I'm talk about other ones. Yeah, I was just thinking about... Uh, those are just for appearances. Yeah. <laughs> well, those ones were just the ones that were my bag. I grabbed quickly. Um, actually, one of the ones I just picked up, and I'm not really very far into it, is, is actually a book by Spurgeon. Um, uh, the Power of Prayer in the Life mm. of a Believer. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been amazing. It's mm. uh, it, it almost reads like a like a sermon. It's like sort of like three point chapters right, kind of yeah. thing. But I find them very, not only devotional, but, uh, but insightful. Um, and so I, the first chapter is all about approaching the throne of grace. And he sort of teases out that, mm-hmm. um, the kind of dichotomy and also intentional juxtaposition there between what does it mean that it's a throne? What does it mean that it's a great, uh, you know, that there's grace and we, we tend to think of mercy and justice being opposite, but God talks about having a throne of, a throne of grace. Um, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm more just bringing it up because I found it encouraging. And I found it, even just that first chapter, immediately helpful to my own prayer life in thinking about, one, uh, that God is sovereign and that when we approach him, it really is a throne we approach to the ruler of all things. And two, that he's gracious and that he actually listens to prayer, mm-hmm. um, which is an, a miraculous thing when you take time to think about it, that the God who sits on the throne of the universe listens to prayer. Yeah. Um, so I would commend that book. One, I'm, I'm speaking out of my own, my own neediness. I hear lots of people say this, even pastors who've been pastoring for years and years and years, and people who are you know new Christians. I feel like every Christian has a sense of um, feeling that their prayer could grow. Mm-hmm. So I picked up this book. The first chapter was really encouraging to me. And I feel like for that reason, it'd be the kind of book I'd suggest people to read, mm, knowing great. that it's such a prevalent. Yes, very practical. Yeah, that people are always, people are always thinking about. Mm-hmm. Anyways. Yeah, well, that's great. Uh, well, on the su- subject of Spurgeon, actually a contemporary of Spurgeon, uh, this guy, Octavius Winslow. Great name. Yes, great name. And a really great preacher and a great writer as well. Uh, I've been reading this book, The Precious Things of God, kind of uh, alongside my devotional reading. And there's few people that I've found who can unfold, uh, well, the preciousness of Christ, like like this guy. Uh, And I think that's just so important for Mm -hmm. Christians because... No, Jesus came to the the woman at the well and said, you know, uh, I I am the water of life, and and it spoke elsewhere. I am the bread of life, and and the Christian is nourished and built up in Christ. Um, so it makes sense that someone 
unfolding through the scriptures more of the diversity and the, and the beauty of Christ is just going to be a really satisfying thing for a Christian. Yeah. And, uh, and so I would encourage that to you. If I had any cons, um, it's, it, the book, the book is in a public domain. So someone just got a hold of it and just butchered the actual. Sounds like an H and E publication. Coming <laughs> yeah. Out. I was actually, yeah. Chance if you're listening. Um, but just like solid, like, like text with no paragraphs. Yeah, that's terrible. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah. So it, that's annoying. And, Not justified. And, and the thing with uh, some of the the 19th century uh, writers, they get a bit flowery in their prose. Oh, it's yeah. It's just like, okay, man, just get to the point. But uh, if you can kind of bear with that, it, it'd be richly rewarded. Anyone mm-hmm. kind of feeling dry or discouraged in their faith, it's a great So book. it's devotional. Devotional, yep. Great. Yep. Yeah, that floweriness... In one way, it's like the poets when they're like trying to be obscure and abstract. It's like, it sounds great. And I can understand, like, I think Piper and is it Justin Taylor wrote that book, Seeing and Saying Beautifully? Mm-hmm. Mm. There's like a, you do want to, you want to say things yes. beautifully. There's yes. a, there's there's a, a difference between saying these beautifully and saying things flowerly, yeah. though. Um, that you can just, I, I, I once... Uh, like verbosity is the is the lazy man's profundity. It's kind of like well, what we were talking about with poetry. It's like mm-hmm. I'm going to use big words mm-hmm. and you know these these analogies. It just distracts from the main point. Mm-hmm. You just got to be aware. It's of like it. the difference between writing poetry and trying to be poetic. And there yes. is a difference. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah, that's and, a they, good, that's and good. to some people, it's like it confuses them because they think it's the same thing, yeah. but it's not. Yeah. Um, okay. The last book I have. The last book I will ever read is, uh, no, it's a book called Habits of Grace by a man named David Mathis, and he is a pastor in Minneapolis, and um, it's about enjoying Jesus through the spiritual disciplines. Mm. And what I really like about it is he really draws out, um, using a phrase that has fallen out of flavor, but we're trying to bring it back, the means of grace is an older term Mm. that people used to talk about. So when we talk about prayer and reading scripture and fellowship with other Christians, um, people think of those primarily as duties, and they are duties, but they but then they get confused. Well, what does that have to do with grace? What does this have to do with the gospel? And he really brings out the idea that these things are means of God's grace to us. It's all grace from beginning to end, but this is kind of um, a means of that. He writes, just as, as an example of this, he says... You know, I can flip a switch, but I don't provide the electricity. I can turn on a faucet, but I don't make the water flow. There will be no light and no liquid refreshment without someone else providing it. And so it is for the Christians and the, with the ongoing grace of God. His grace is essential for our spiritual lives, but we don't control the supply. Mm. We can't make the favor of God flow, but he has given us circuits to connect us and pipes to open expectantly. Mm. There are paths along which he has promised his favor. That's a helpful That's analogy. Helpful. Yeah. And the other thing I'll say about this, David Mathis is a very good writer. Hmm. He, he is succinct. He is clear. And he writes beautifully, though, without hmm. being flowery and in too many words. That's actually really hard to do. It is, yeah. To be succinct but beautiful. Yeah, compelling, yeah. Um, he is a very good writer. You may have read him on the Desiring God blogs. I think he's, uh, he's the executive editor, editor of Desiring God. Um, so, yeah, great guy. Um, great writer and a very helpful book 
to help you with your spiritual disciplines, mm. to encourage you in that. So, yes, that is very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we could just keep going. <laughs> we should do one more. Yeah. Just, just quickly, just... You know? just, just quick, we'll just do a speed round where we all throw out quick thoughts well, on some books we're reading. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, you go. Uh, you're looking at me, I haven't even thought about it okay, yet. Okay, well, I'll go. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, this one's always on my... Uh, oh, I saw that, and I was hoping you were going to talk about it, so go ahead. Yeah, this one's always... <laughs> I'm always in this. This is uh, the letters of John Newton, uh, compiled by Josiah Bull, who was one of his friends. Um when I think of uh, a, phys- a physician of souls, uh, I think of John Newton. Uh, hmm. John Newton uh, was deeply acquainted with his own heart. Uh, you know, he was a hard-bitten sailor for many years. Uh, he'd kind of tasted the bitter fruit of sin. And, and that experience, when God saved him, uh, gives him a realness and a preciseness to his counsel. Um, People kind of say that, um, oh, who was the famous, Whitfield, you know, he was famous for uh, preaching in the uh, revival, but Newton was kind of the caretaker of the revival in that he, he wrote letters to people who had been saved in the wake of the revival and kind of encouraged them and, dis- and discipled them. Um, and so he is just, he is just a great writer, um, very specific, uh, you know, people struggling just with uh, the burden of sin and, and, and stubborn sins that seem just perpetually there in a battle. He's just, uh, just brings the medicine of the gospel to bear on, uh, on so many different aspects. So yeah, they're just brief letters and he writes to a number of different people and uh, it's just a yeah, fantastic compilation. Yeah, I remember reading it might have been a Desiring God blog, but they republished a couple of his letters in full on on Romans 8, I think, mm. and the Battle of the Flesh. Maybe it was Romans 6, Romans 8. So encouraging, so helpful, very practical. It's amazing how the Christian battle against sin, it's so, it, it, it's so practical no matter when you're writing about it. Like uh, Newton's, what, 1700s? Yeah, or? 1700s, yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you have that, and I'd like to borrow oh, it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, please. <laughs> yeah, anyone. Um, that's awesome. All right. Yep. Well, yeah. are we? Well, maybe we can keep going, but uh, yeah. yeah, read books, and maybe <laughs> some of them here today have been helpful for you. Mm-hmm. And uh, we will. We should clearly start yes. up giving reviews more often. We should. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay. Well, hopefully, we'll <laughs> see you next week. Yeah.